Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share their most recent work. This week, I had the honor of chatting with Robert Cialdini, Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Marketing at Arizona State University and the world's leading scholar on the psychology of influence. His books on influencing and persuading others have been translated into 44 languages and have sold over 7 billion copies. In this episode, we chat about Bob's adventurous and amusing journey into psychology and studying influence. If you want to influence others, what can you do? Can these strategies be used for unethical purposes? Do people underestimate how easily they are influenced by others? How has Bob used these strategies in his own life? How can academics have more influence and design better experiments? Finally, and most importantly, how can I influence our wonderful listeners of this podcast to leave a review and spread the word? Hope you enjoy this conversation. Today, I am honored to be talking with Robert Cialdini for the podcast, and we'll be talking about your work and how you got started researching influence and many other topics in social psychology. But first of all, thank you for making the time to join us. Well, I'm glad to be with you, Eric. We just got started talking about how you got interested in this field before we started the recording, and I had to say, stop, 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 stop. This is so interesting. People have to hear about it. For us young psychologists, it can be hard to know what our passion is, our academic passion is, and we can look up to other researchers who are known for specific topics they have studied and just conclude, well, they always knew what they wanted. They were born and knew they wanted to be a social psychologist, cognitive psychologist. But oftentimes the journey is more complicated. I was wondering if you could tell us, how did you become interested in psychology? When did you know you wanted to become a psychologist? Well, I knew I wanted to be a psychologist even before I went to university, because I remember reading in the newspaper stories about various kinds of researchers who were studying astronomy or genetics or archaeology and so on. But the ones who were studying human behavior, those really grabbed my attention. I thought those were the most interesting. So I knew that, and I, I became a major, a psychology major. This is at the University of Wisconsin, and uh, took an introductory psychology course. And I thought that was interesting, but not enough to uh, focus me where I really wanted to go, which was human psychology, social psychology, because I was working with a faculty member who studied animal behavior. And indeed, my first publication was on earthworms, <laughs> alarm pheromone in earthworms that signal to other earthworms when they've been distressed and leave a, a kind of a precipitate on the ground that is noxious to other earthworms who entire, in, encounter it. So they leave. So my first publication was in Science, the journal Science, uh, and it was a downhill uh, trip since <laughs> then, I have to say. But but uh, I was about to go off to graduate school in ethology to study human uh, at animal behavior uh, and never had taken a social psychology course. But I had a girlfriend at the time, Marilyn, Marilyn, who was um, taking a social psychology course. And there happened to be an empty seat next to her. And I filled it. We were at a time in our relationship. We wanted to be together all the time. So I sat in on the course. And by the end of the term, I was more interested in social psychology than ethology, and as these things go at that age, of Maryland. <laughs> so I decided to uh, apply uh, immediately for uh, graduate school in social psychology, and uh, it it was um, a great choice, I think. Interestingly is how serendipitous it was. What if there hadn't been an empty seat? next to Marilyn? Or what if I hadn't been uh, dating a girl who was in a social psychology class? Where would I be now? You and I wouldn't be talking. It was a, it was a, a fork in the road, something that happened that sent me in a direction 
that was going to be dramatically different than the other direction I was heading in at the time. I think there ought to be a book written by people about forks in the road, mm-hmm. things like that that could have gone one way or another and that changed the tenor and the uh, the course of their lives because of some small thing that had entered their information environment at the time. So anyway, that was mine. That was there are more such uh, serendipitous uh, events that event eventually brought me to uh, where we are sitting now. In fact, my my fr- very first big uh, fork in the road was that in high school I was actually a very good baseball player, mm-hmm. enough good enough to get a, a, a an offer to play minor league baseball. Uh, there was a scout who came to my last game. We had talked before. He'd come to my last game with a contract. And, you know, I wanted to be a center fielder. I wanted to be Mickey Mays. I wanted to uh, Mickey Mantle. I wanted to be Willie Mays. And um, so he came with this contract, and his pen didn't work. So we had to go to his car uh, to get another pen. And along the way, he started asking me questions. He said, uh, let me ask you, are you any good at school? I said, yeah. Good enough to get into college? Yes. Good enough to finish college and get a degree? Yes. Do you like school? I said, I do like school. I like it a lot. And he took the contract. And he said, go to school, kid. Wow. You've told me that you have a passion for something that you're really good at. You also have a passion for baseball, but you're not really good enough to become a major leaguer. That's a very remote possibility. Choose the passion that you're most likely to achieve, the goal set that you're most likely to achieve. I think that's a very important lesson. And piece of advice. We often hear people saying, decide what you want to do based on what you're passionate about. Well, we're passionate about more than one thing. If we are breathing, you know, we're passionate about, well, choose the one that you are best equipped to achieve your goals within. Uh, Very important, I thought, uh, for me. Well, this brings us to your work on influence. And one facet of it might be that we seem to underestimate maybe how much we are influenced by others and how our big life choices are not made when we're sitting in a room with a to-do list and this I have to do and pro and con. And we don't really do this often. And when we do, it probably has no impact on our decisions whatsoever. (laughs) It's really that we are influenced by others. Do you think it's fair to say that we underestimate these social forces? Yes. And uh, we don't therefore analyze them to understand causality in how we uh, are choosing or deciding. Uh, And I have another anecdote in that regard. uh, And it has to do with the fact that, you know, if the question is, how did you choose to study social influence and persuasion? I think it has to do with all my life. I've been an easy mark uh, for the presentations of sales operators or fundraisers, charity organizations who've come to my door and asked me for contributions of one sort or another. And I I would also always find myself in unwanted possession of some magazine subscriptions I didn't really want or contributing to causes I had never heard of. And after one of those instances, I did have that insight that you just talked about, that wait, something just happened there that I don't truly understand. It wasn't the features of the offer that got me to say yes, because I'm not compelled, I'm not attracted sufficiently to the features of the offer. It was the way the features the features were presented to me. It was the psychology of the delivery system that was employed by the communicator, by the requester, by the salesperson or the fundraiser and so on that got me to say yes. And I remember thinking to myself, well, isn't this interesting that there are factors, there are psychological factors that incline people, not just me, toward assent beyond the merits of the case. It has to do with the way those merits are 
engaged and presented to us in terms of our psychological motives. So I thought that would be worthy of study, not just for uh, self-defense, but because most people would be interested in knowing what those factors are. So that launched me in that direction towards studying the social influence process. Now, I am in graduate school in social psychology now in 2022. Many people study social norms and you know, reciprocity and all these different techniques you are talking about. These are very hot topics. What was it like when you started studying this, once you moved on from the earthworms to us earthlings communicating with one another and trying to influence one another? Were there a lot of people studying these topics? Did your advisors say this is what you should be studying? Was there a lot of positive resonance or was there more, were there obstacles in the way? I mean, uh, my the, the the advisor I chose to work with was uh, Chester Insco at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill because he was studying attitude and attitude change, form of persuasion. And what we did, though, was to study these shifts that we could generate in people's opinions or positions on a topic in the laboratory with all other factors uh, eliminated or, uh, a, a, except for the one that we were going to manipulate. Uh, we could control that environment. It was a sterile environment. It was an artificial environment. The subjects knew that they were being investigated, and the subjects were, for the most part, college students, uh, sophomores. And we were getting good results. I had a lot of early publications from graduate school, and um, but it occurred to me after a while that I was missing something very important in limiting my investigations to that setting and that population. And that is whether what I was learning was powerful beyond the laboratory. The effects that I was learning about were powerful enough to change behavior in field settings where we all are a subject to the various influence attempts and the influence wars that are being fought all around us and we're part of every day. Um, what, what were the factors that worked there? That struck me as a more important question. So I began to do something that involved participant observation. It's a technique for studying behavior by infiltrating the setting of interest and becoming a participant in it to learn about the dynamics of that situation and what the causal factors are that produce that, that produce effects within that situation. Anthropologists do it, sociologists do it more, much more than we do. But what I did was to enter the training programs of as many influence professions as I could get access to at that time. I answered ads to learn how to sell uh, automobiles, to learn how to sell insurance, to learn how to sell vacuum cleaners, door-to-door nutritional systems, and so on. But I didn't stop there. I also answered ads for how to become a fundraiser, for example, Um, how to become a recruiter. All these kinds of professions whose business it was to get others to say yes to you, because I thought their economic livelihoods depend on it. If they don't employ techniques and practices that work, they will not exist. So they must have identified the most powerful and uh, robust influences on the influence process. But they're not going to give me their, their knowledge, right? This is proprietary information, uh, just because I want to know about it. Uh, but they, there is one place where they do dispense that information. It's in their training programs. So I just enrolled incognito, disguised identity, disguised intent, in their programs to learn what they said worked for them. And I, this, I did this for about two and a half years and came away with a very small set of principles of influence that were used in common across these uh, professions. And I thought, wow, this is worth taking to my laboratory and 
unpacking the causal factors that produce these effects in rigorous kinds of ways. I, and and, and uh, then it seemed to me I should do more than that. I should go into the field and study how these uh, uh, factors are working outside of laboratory situations, but in not naturally occurring situations. And the result was I came upon a very small set of these principles, um, and I put them in a book uh, called Influence, one to a chapter. And Eric, I have to say that book has been very good to me. It's <laughs> it sold more copies than I could have sensibly imagined when I first wrote it in a number of uh, languages. And in fact, I have a colleague uh, from Poland, Professor Wilhelmina Wosinska, who said to me, you know, Bob, your book, Influence, is so famous in Poland, my students think you're dead. <laughs> Which I thought was an affirming yet sobering commentary on the book. So I've written subsequent editions of it. In fact, just last year, I wrote a new edition to keep letting people know that, no, I'm not dead. I'm still, I'm still working. <laughs> well, we are happy to hear it. What is so remarkable is the year in which you published this first book, I think in 1984, if Wikipedia is not lying to me. Nowadays, many people, many psychology researchers publish books and it's somewhat of a norm. But my impression is in 1984, there were not a lot of people publishing trade books. Did you encounter a lot of obstacles? Was it harder for you to publish it? Yes, it, it was because, well, first of all, I had to wait until I was sure I would get tenure, because I knew that this would take me out of the research arm of what I do, the research track, for a while. As I was focusing on gathering this information and then writing the book. Um, I had to wait till I had a record I was sure was going to get me promotion and tenure and stability right, and safety. Um, but it, but the, yeah. So uh, in 1984, there were no books like this, partially because they didn't count very much in your promotion or tenure record. Uh, you had to have highly prestigious outlets for your work, uh, peer-reviewed and so on. And I had enough of those, but I needed to do this other thing because I thought it was important to tell the non-academic community what we had learned with their money. Uh, in those days, uh, we just didn't write for the non-academic community. We wrote for our colleagues in journals and, and academic outlets. And it always struck me as that we were violating an implicit contract with the non-academic community, who in every meaningful sense has paid for the research with their tax dollars or with their contributions to our university. They give us the opportunity and the resources to conduct the research with the expectation that we will let them know what they would find worthwhile about our, uh, what we've determined, right? With their money, again. With their, so it seemed to me it was important to do it. You are right that there were barriers to this, well, I think maybe the the greatest is characterized in a quote by a British uh, legal scholar, James Boyle. He said, you have never heard true condescension until you've heard academic pronounce the word popularizer. And that was something that did fill me with some dread that if I was going to speak to the larger community and have to structure what I had to say by planing away all of the details of methodology and statistical analysis and so on, I might be seen as a popularizer. So I, I worried about that, but I essentially decided it was worth uh, doing that. And I, I was relieved that the majority of people professionals, my colleagues, did not attack the book as something of a popular, uh, pop psych, popularized 
uh, uh, academic work that uh, mischaracterizes the, the the true nature of it. And I think that's so for a reason that, first of all, I had citations in the book. I had pages and pages and pages of citations to back up what I had to say so they could see I was ready to do intellectual battle with them if they wanted to criticize what I was saying. I had I had the receipts. Uh, the other was I didn't talk about just my own research, but I talked about the research of academic social psychology and of behavioral science as something to be promoted and to be uh, to use as counsel for what the reader might want to do. And so I was including everybody, <laughs> all my colleagues, in the promotion of this kind of research. And I think what what happened is I didn't get a lot of feed, uh, flashback or, or uh, criticism because of something I've always believed. People don't sink the boats they're riding in. And I put my colleagues in this boat with me. And so they weren't about to torpedo it. My impression is that whenever an academic idea really becomes successful, influential, that must be scary for the author. It must be great to see that your ideas would have such an impact. But I wonder, was there an element of fear of, oh God, where's all this headed? Because I imagine there must have been misapplications, misunderstandings of your work. Yeah, and I'm going to add to that uh, something. So the misapplication of it is of concern. So you have to be especially concerned about the conclusions that can be drawn, right? Not the speculation as to what those conclusions could be in some hypothetical future. That's one thing. The other thing is you have to be very concerned about the ethics of what you're proposing. These are techniques, their practices, their um, procedures that could be misapplied, not just in terms of the accuracy of what you're suggesting, but in terms of the misuse of those persuasion principles to move people in one's direction in uh, deceptive ways. So I had to deal with both of those things if you notice that in the book that I uh, that you were asking about, at the end of every chapter of, of each principle, there's a section that says, how do you say no to this? How do you defend yourself against these principles if they're used in undue or unwelcome ways? So do you think there is a correlation between being able to influence others and the ability to detect when others are influencing you as you learn about these techniques? Absolutely. If you know what the major principles or approaches are that lend themselves to assent, if you can, if you can then spot them, if you can recognize their existence in some appeal or another that uh, is directed at you, that can that should cause you to step back from the situation and ask whether that appeal is indeed compelling in terms of its uh, accuracy and is ethical in terms of its uh, use. Is that how you see the world now after decades of studying these techniques? Do you see these different techniques applied everywhere and are you perfectly resistant to them? I'm not perfectly resistant because I don't want to be resistant to them. I'm only resistant to them when they're employed deceptively. So, for example, I'll give you a, an instance. A few years ago, I was in an appliance store. I wasn't looking to buy a television, but I saw a big screen TV that was on sale, and it had been rated the top TV set uh, of that size by Consumer Reports. So I went. I, there were some brochures underneath the, the set and on the, on the counter where it was uh, placed, and I was looking through it and the, the brochure and the the salesperson, a salesperson came up to me and he said, I see you're interested in this, in this set at this price. I can see why it's a great deal. But I have to tell you, it's our last one. Hmm. Now, I knew that was a scarcity, 
appeal. That was a scarcity tactic. It's the only one. If you don't do, if you don't buy it now, you will lose it, right? And then he said, and I just got a call from a woman who said she was be likely to come in today to purchase it. Eric, 20 minutes later, I'm wheeling out of the shop <laughs> with that set in my cart, and I'm supposed to be the doctor of influence, right? So why would I recognize what was being done and fall victim to it anyway, susceptible to it? It's because if it was true, that was a piece of information I wanted to know, I needed to know to put into the decision matrix I was that was running through my head. If I had gone back home to think about it, if he hadn't said this to me, right? If he hadn't used this, pr these principles of uh, scarcity, and I had gone home to think about whether I should buy it, and I said, yes, I should. And the next morning I went in, and that woman from Scottsdale, Arizona, <laughs> had come and purchased that, that set. I would have been enraged. What? This was the last one, and you didn't tell me about its scarcity? You didn't inform me that it was the last one and there was a rival who was likely to buy it from under me if I didn't act now? What's wrong with you, man? What's So what I'm saying is, if it's true, I want to know about the scarcity. If it's true, I want to know about general, genuine authority voices that support a particular position. I want to know about the range of social proof that uh, has to do with a particular product or service or idea. I want to know all of those things, provided they're not fabricated. So I'm, I, I am ready to respond to one or another of these principles because they counsel me correctly when they're truly part of the situation in an inherent way. I want the communicator to raise that factor to my consciousness so I can put it in the equation I'm using about whether how to decide. So, in fact, was this guy telling the truth or not? I went back the next day to see if that spot was still empty. As opposed to he went to the storeroom and just got another set and put it there and used the same strategy on the next customer, which, by the way, has been the case in some companies. They actually train their people in this strategy. It was empty. He was, he was telling me the truth. So what I did was to go home and write a very positive online review of this shop and this uh, salesperson. If it had been a device, it had been an artifice, if it had been a tactic, a fabricated tactic, a counterfeited tactic to get me uh, to buy, I would have written a very different <laughs> online review. And I think that's what we all have to do. Uh, we have to decide based on the evidence we have that the principle uh, that we see that we have recognized as part of the appeal is genuinely there in the situation. As a communicator, for example, I'm entitled to point to true scarcity in a situation. I'm entitled to point to true popularity of a product or service. I'm entitled to point to true testimonials from acknowledged experts about what it is and to influence the recipient of that communication in a way that I think informs that person into assent. That takes care of both the efficacy of the strategy and the ethics of it. I'm not inventing something. I'm not fabricating something. I'm, I'm pointing to it and raising it to consciousness in people who may not have known about its true scarcity or its true popularity, whatever uh, principle might be there. And that allows me to make a distinction between manipulation on the one hand and proper social influence on the other. It's whether the, the principle of influence that one is harnessing in the appeal is both 
truly present and representative in the information environment? And if so, I don't think, I think it's more than simply not objectionable. I think it's commendable to use those principles because we're, we're actually educating people into um, compliance. It is almost like it reflects your view of human nature, what you think people will do with these influence techniques, right? A cynic might say, nah, people will just use it for ill and for bad, deceptive purposes. But oftentimes that's not the case, right? It's often not the case. Uh, and besides, if we were to prevent ourselves from publishing or publicizing any effect that we may have, in, uh, we, we have generated, right we would say nothing we would be silent because there's there's the chance that some person will misuse it we, we don't have control over that so we can't just provide an embargo on anything we find because somebody may in the future distort it or or use it in unethical ways we just have to make sure that we make the claim, and this is the other thing I try to do, is make the claim that I'm going to take, let me just say something that Benjamin Franklin once said about the persuasion process. He said, when it comes to persuasion, focus not on argument, focus on self-interest. So if we can honestly give people evidence that what we have to offer is in their self-interest because there there truly is true authority testimonials genuine uh, you know consistency with what they uh, would like to 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 do in terms of their value system or whatever if that's truly there uh it's commendable <laughs> for us to uh to make the, the case. I am often thinking about this in the academic context where I have many friends who are just full of brilliant ideas where I really think this could change things, this could change people's lives. But we are not really taught how to, how to help these ideas have an impact. And it's really hard to see that. What is your advice for, let's say, writing a paper, a publication that has more of an impact for academics to get their ideas out there? Yeah, so I think that you're, I think what you're doing right now is one example. We can publicize the 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 results, the findings, the outcomes of our research, right? In uh, podcasts, we can do it in editorials, uh, you know, to newspapers. We can do it in columns. We can do it in blogs. We we have a whole array of opportunities now to speak to the larger community about what we've learned and inform them so that their outcomes are better having had this knowledge right and i'm going to include uh, my favorite such uh, vehicle for include popular books written by credible academics who have histories and knowledge bases in whole domains of research who can then write an popular book. It's now a cottage industry. I mean, every week, another uh, estimable uh, academic writes a popular book about his or her research and the conclusions that the larger public could derive from them that would make them more knowledgeable and better off. I, I, I love that fact. In 1984, when I wrote Influence, there were no such books. They didn't exist. So uh, I'm glad to see that that's changed dramatically. My impression is that you have also had an impact in the political domain. And again, if Wikipedia isn't lying, you have been involved in the Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton campaigns. Is that true? And if so, how did that connection get established? And what did your work look like? So uh, with it wasn't just me. It was a, a group of uh, academics, behavioral scientists, who, through the intervention of a very capable uh, behavioral scientist, Craig Fox at UCLA, I think Craig was the last of uh, Ames Tversky's PhDs. He's now a major 
um, thought leader in, himself in this. He had contacts with uh, the the campaigns and said that he could marshal a group of uh, behavioral scientists who would be willing to speak on various issues that they might address. So if the issue was, let's say, how do we get out the vote for young people who traditionally have not done this? Or how do we counter this particular uh, claim on the part of the, uh, uh, the opposing uh, side that is, uh, that is untrue? These are the sorts of things that we we worked with um, them on. And I have to say that in the Obama campaigns, they were much more um, open to act to academic counsel uh, because truthfully, especially in the first Obama campaign, he was such a, a neophyte national politics. He didn't really have the uh, sway to bring in high-powered, professional campaign advisors who had made their made their reputations in uh, advising political candidates. But Hillary Clinton did. And those people essentially shouldered us to the side. And I think I have a reason. We were bringing information to bear that they didn't have access to. They were not in control of that information. It was another source that was separate from their history and experience and knowledge of how campaigns ought to be arranged and uh, how to operate them. And they thought they knew more than we did because they were the ones with all the experience in it. The truth is, they were experienced in campaign activities, but we were the ones who were experienced in human behavior. We knew about the triggers that launched various kinds of actions in people when they encountered those triggers. We did, we did try to advise all of those campaigns, but with less access in the Hillary Clinton campaign. You have more than 200 academic publications at this point. And I know we have talked about your work on influence and you have published many papers on influence. Is there an aspect of your work, maybe a different topic you have studied or a certain aspect of influence that you wish people asked you more about, that you are burning for, but that people just aren't asking you the right questions about? Well, I thought you were going to ask a different question. Let me just raise my answer to that. I thought you were going to ask, which are the areas of social influence that you wish more people would ask you to investigate? We, you know, the, the most important things that were that are falling through the cracks right now. And I would say, yes, it's um, persistence of the effects and resistance to the effects of persuasive communication. We, we study and identify effects that are relatively local and relatively temporary, that we don't examine how long they last, how durable they are. Uh, that's something that I think if there were any people, uh, young researchers uh, listening to uh, this podcast, that would be a fertile ground for uh, investigation. It's difficult to undertake because it means long-term uh, contact with subjects and, uh, uh, and, and means of, of uh, uh, collecting data and so on that are, they're just difficult. But if we knew which of the principles and which of the techniques and which of the approaches were the ones that didn't just produce uh, temporary uh, spontaneous kinds of changes, but uh, had legs, that would be very valuable. Uh, the other is this idea of resistance. We, we study for the most part what approaches lend themselves to success that cause people to move in a particular direction. I think we could also study more than we do the factors that cause people to resist and 
and uh, deflect those approaches. Uh, if we could do that in a systematic way, I think that would be uh, helpful as well. There almost seems to be a certain arms race between our ability to influence others and their ability to detect that they are being influenced and that the techniques have to become more nuanced. Uh, there's a fascinating study that showed uh, for online uh, uh, commercial websites that uh, try to you know, move people in their direction for products or services and then get star ratings on Amazon or the various re review sites, right? Um, getting all five stars is not the one that most convinces people to move in the direction that you are recommending. Because they know that, that people are, are forging some of those. They're buying reviews, they're inserting their own comments uh, under uh, uh, in disguise and so on so it turns out the optimal range for the number of stars you have uh, uh, relative to your um, your offer is between 4.2 and 4.7 below 4.2 people say you well, know maybe this isn't so a product. Maybe it's not such a great uh, choice. Above 4.7, they start getting skeptical and suspicious that this could really be true. Right? So we are always in a battle with these individuals who, uh, who phony up the information that they're uh, sending to us. But we catch on and there are algorithms within the, the review sites now to try to uh, weed out those uh, those fake reviews. So we are in a constant battle. Now you have started being a social psychologist, thanks to Maryland, shout out to her, many decades ago. <laughs> <laughs> and you are still in social psychology. And the field must have changed in so many different ways. And one way in which it has changed is the whole you know, generalizability crisis, replication crisis, many things that can make people very hopeless about the field and say nothing works. And of course, that's not true. Many things still do work. How optimistic are you about the future of social psychology? I am optimistic about it, uh, especially if we take more of a turn toward field research as opposed to just laboratory research. I don't, I mean, I've done laboratory research all my life. It's necessary. It's important to get the rigor of causality uh, determinations, uh, but uh, I think we would we would thrive to a greater extent if some of our uh, investigations were grounded in field settings, naturalistic settings where uh, behavior is occurring uh, in the ways that are normally seen in those situations, uh, and that I think helps with the replica replication crisis in two ways. If we get our results in those kinds of settings where the, the work we're doing is buffeted by all kinds of variables that we're, we don't have control over, we're not controlling them away the way we would in a laboratory, uh, and you know all kinds of things that are happening in the general marketplace of ideas that are, uh, that are uh, operating and functioning, if we still get our results in reliable ways, that tells me that those results are likely to, to survive uh, replication attempts because they have uh, shown themselves to be robust uh, uh, in, uh, in those kinds of situations. So that's one reason I think we'd be more likely avoid the, the likelihood of uh, a failed replication. There's another reason that uh, people won't likely fail to replicate our field studies because they won't undertake to replicate our field studies. They take too much time and effort, and so they'll go somewhere else. <laughs> and so we'll be fine. What is your advice for young scholars in the space who want to be psychologists, who are just getting started with research, but they might not know 
what their academic passion is. Now, we talked about passion earlier. What is your advice for figuring out what you are interested in and finding your own research agenda? I have a couple of things that I recommend to young researchers to, uh, to prioritize when they see a particular effect and want to pursue it. One is in situations where the size of the effect outstrips the size of the change in your uh, procedure, your technique. Even a small shift in what you say or do produces an enormous effect in people. That tells me that there's a, there's a pool of energy there undergirding that effect, that if you tap into it, you get it to vent itself out into behavior. I mean, the, the, the classic example in my own instance is I was once on a, uh, I was once a visiting professor at Ohio State University, and I used to go to their football games. And if you know anything about Ohio State University, it's a huge stadium, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Uh, and I went to a game, and uh, as I was walking to my seat, the team ran out onto the field. That's all they did. They just ran out onto the field. And the place went berserk. They were singing fight songs. They were jumping around. They were spilling beer on one another. They were shouting, we're number one. And from running onto the field, there wasn't, it wasn't yet a play. Nobody had made a score or a touchdown or a tackle. Nothing. Just running onto the field was enough to produce this outpouring of effect. And I remember thinking to myself, because I had been uh, worrying about a particular uh, study I was doing on attitude change, and I wasn't getting enough, um, enough of, a, of a change to produce a significant result. And I was thinking about what could I do to get this result to show itself more powerfully. And then I saw this, and I remember saying to myself, Cialdini, I think you're studying the wrong thing. Here's the power. Look at this. Look at the psychology of the sports fan. I mean, there's an enormous impact of being aligned. And I think in terms of a, a, a social identity, for the most part, social identity theory accounts for this, being aligned and together with part of belonging to this unit of, uh, in this case, uh, Ohio State University fans, cause people to go crazy in terms of favoring uh, their, uh, their champions. So I remember this is worth studying. So I started studying uh, basking in reflected glory, the tendency of sports fans to feel that they want, that they uh, are entitled to uh, the, the glory of the victory of a merely affiliated sports team, right? Uh, so that, we did several studies in that regard, but that was the kind of thing that I would do. Here's the other one. If you ever see something like that, if you ever see an effect that produces an enormous impact as a result of a small... <laughs> meaningless, almost meaningless change. The team felt just ran onto the field, right? Study that. The other one is if you ever get people to change who they are as a result of your manipulation or operationalization of a variable, you get introverts acting like extroverts. You get meek people being assertive. You get people who uh, don't believe much uh, in themselves, acting uh, proud. And so whatever, there's power there. It means you have been able to change something enduring and abiding about that person with this one thing that you've done. That's worth pursuing. 
Well, this is usually where I would thank you for being on the podcast and then afterwards ask our listeners to leave a good review <laughs> so more people can discover the podcast. But why should I be doing this when I have you on the podcast? I wonder. <laughs> and also thank you, of course, for taking the time to be on the podcast. If you had to pitch the Stanford Psychology Podcast, our listeners, to leave a good review <laughs> so more people can discover us, what would you say? I would use the results that Greg Walton has uh, helped uh, publicize, and that is the power of trends. I would talk about the trends in uh, visitors and subscribers and access that you have had over the months that you've... I mean, even if it's still not up there with the highest le uh, level uh, podcasts, the fact that you've got a trajectory in that direction causes people to project that into the future. It's something that we call future social proof. My own team has done some of this work as well, <clears throat> what we call trending um, uh, social proof. So uh, that's what I would do, because you have it in your, uh, it's real. It's you can point to it. You don't have to deceive anybody about your popularity, even if it isn't at the top, you can talk about a trend in that direction. And that's powerful. Terrific. Thank you so much for taking the time. All right. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Following Robert Cialdini's advice here on this podcast, let's see if I can convince you to take about five seconds of your valuable time and leave us a quick review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or elsewhere. <laughs> this podcast has been a labor of love by several wonderful young folks here in the department, and we have been surprised by the ever-increasing reach the podcast has had. We are near half a million downloads a year and a half since we started, with tens of thousands of new downloads and thousands of new followers every single month in nearly every country around the world. Help us make even more people excited about psychology by leaving us a review or subscribing to our no-spam, all-fun substack at Stanford PsyPod to connect with other listeners or shoot us an email with your thoughts or suggestions at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and have a wonderful psyched